Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Mandy McAllister. Mandy is a full-time multifamily real estate investor with a portfolio comprised of 205 units in mainly college towns and urban centers. Previously, she was in medical device sales and now focuses on repositioning underperforming assets to increase cash flow and value. So thank you so much for being on the show, Mandy. Uh, could not be more excited to be here, Charles. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on. And uh, tell us a little bit about your story, both personally and professionally, because now you're full-time in real estate. And uh, yeah, let us know about your little journey before choosing to invest in real estate. Yeah, so actually this is retirement week. This <laughs> is, uh, it's, it's particularly cool because it's like one drawn out celebration and uh, excited to, to get to talk about it. So um, I originally was interested in real estate investing when I was 19 years old in 1999, standing on the porch of a friend's like house in our college town. And she explained that her dad bought the house and she was renting the, the rooms out to our friends. And I'm like, you get to keep that money. That's the <laughs> best idea I've ever heard in my whole life. So the seed was planted of must be real estate investor in 1999. But then I followed all the rules that you're supposed to do. And I went, you know, and got a master's degree and I moved to an urban city in Chicago and, you know, no, you need to buy your own house first. So I bought the $400,000 condo like you're supposed to do before buying anything for investment. And then that plus some analysis paralysis put me in a spot that I didn't end up buying anything for express purpose of investment until 2016. So that was a fourplex. And then, you know, it all kind of, I got bit by that bug that, oh my gosh, I didn't die after buying this fourplex. And not only that, I have a thousand dollars cash flow that I don't work for coming in for me. Yeah. If you can rinse and repeat that a few times, you know, five years later, look at us where, you know, real estate only now. Nice. Uh, did you, on that first one, was that like an FHA uh, mortgage? Did you, or you did? No, okay. I did ever, like, I like to do stuff the hard way, I guess. <laughs> if I could do it all over, I would talk to 19 year old Mandy and say the minute that you are out of school, go buy a fourplex somewhere and then house hack that yeah. buy on an FHA loan. That, that's the advice I give, you know, younger friends and, you know, their siblings and kids, you know, but um, I, I put 25% down mm. on uh, an investment in a college town, which uh, I felt like kids are going to keep going to school. And honestly, I still think that to this. Yeah, yeah for sure. It's interesting. You said about, uh, your friend when you were 19 figuring that out i remember i was talking to someone in college i'm like why do you want to be i'm like why do you want to be a real estate investor i'm like you rent an apartment how often have you seen your the owner there and they're like i never see him I'm like exactly so it's like, like oh yeah it's a, that makes perfect sense but uh it's a very interesting it's it's a great business model but house hacking that's how i started and uh with the three family but uh it's it's definitely do you still own that four unit i do nice. it's uh i probably only hang on it for nostalgia purposes, because it's a little <laughs> it's the only thing I still own in Illinois. I'm like actively oh. selling everything else because I I don't love how we manage our state. Yeah. And I'm uh, in markets that are more landlord friendly, but for some reason I hang on to that. <laughs> so uh, tell us about the, your first couple of real estate investments. Uh, this four family, like how did you get? Uh, how did you find it? 
how did mm-hmm. you choose the market? Did you like, what mistakes did you make on your first deal there? I made a lot of, I made a lot of mistakes and a lot of them really were kind of happy mistakes because I put a lot of kind of thoughts uh, from the, the kids perspective, my avatar of my perfect hmm. renter. I really, you know, I, I have business degrees, whatever. So like, that's just kind of how my brain was, you know, went at this problem. So um, the fourplex, I realized that, you know, kids aren't going to stop going to school. So I want to, I want a state school in, uh, I feel like, you know, I, I did undergrad at a, a private school and I just, I feel like the state schools are more likely to be well-funded well into the future yeah. um, than, uh, you know, private colleges. So I went with the state school. I thought, okay, uh, two hour drive from where I'm living, that kind of means, you know, one of these four schools. And it turns out one of them was tearing down two dorms that same year I wanted to acquire something. Mm-hmm. Um, that plus the student population. So just like you would look at a multifamily investment and you want to know what's happening with, you know, rent growth and population growth and all of that stuff. I feel like a happy accident that I made is what I paid attention to was, you know, what's happening to housing for these kids. And also um, what is the student population doing? Is it growing? Is it becoming more commuter or more kids wanting to live close to campus? So those are happy mistakes. And then I uh, was coaching volleyball at the time and a woman that was like a co-coach um she was uh had just graduated from college the same school that I was targeting for investment and I said all right if you want to this is another happy mistake how if you wanted to rent an apartment two years ago when you were at Illinois State where do you go and she said oh you call one of these two property managers so I interviewed both of them and uh another happy mistake didn't realize that you you know in most states you have to have a real estate license in order to um manage property well gosh these guys like i picked the one that i i really loved they're it's their sammy student apartment mart in uh normal illinois i i have nothing to do with them but they're so great i like to plug them when i can um you know they set me up. They were incented to help me find something that fit my criteria. Mm. And, you know, they got the commission when I bought it too, because they were running the searches and serving as my buyer's agent. So a lot of happy mistakes that put me in a situation that I leveraged their knowledge of the area. I leveraged the, um, I bought an unfurnished rental and turned it into a furnished rental. So I leveraged their bulk buying of, you know, couches and end tables and stuff. So, um, partnering with that was really huge early on. How close is that property to the actual university? Uh, and that's the, that's the thing too. So it's just under a mile. So you could walk oh, nice. it in 10 or 15 minutes. So in, I, I kind of have, you develop theories as you go on, right? And we talk a lot about A, B, C, D classifications for, is it a brand new construction or is it in the hood? Um, I feel like A, B, C, D uh, delineations around college towns, at least from my own head, is distance from campus. Because if you think of the places that you mm-hmm. were willing to live in college, what mattered most is can I, you know, roll out of bed, get to my eight o'clock class on time. That mattered most. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hated parking uh, when I lived off in one place, driving and trying to park. Uh, going in class, it was terrible. It had to be, and I was like, I got to move to something that's walkable to school. And it's, it was just, it was, it's, it makes a huge difference. Um, it's also interesting too. I found with, in certain colleges where they're taking down, uh, one of the exit strategies could be actually selling the property to right. the college. And I know that's much more of an exit strategy for larger apartment complexes. However, um, if you go to some places like in New England, uh, I know it's places in Boston, 
and people are in dorms that are like three family houses. So it's, mm. it is a exit strategy for these colleges that are growing. And a lot of people, uh, no matter what COVID does and what people say about that, like you said, people, I don't think kids are going to want to stay home with their parents more or uh, do something different or like, you know, zoom call with their parent in their parents' basement compared to the college experience, which uh, is very important. I think. Another but, note uh, on that quickly, sorry, lots yeah. of uh, ways that, um, student housing investors have made a lot of money if they rent by the bedroom. Mm. Well, I chose one beds because oh. uh, I thought the avatar of the kid wouldn't screw things up, right? Like the, you either have a bookish person who wants to live alone or you have a, a graduate student, you know? And that actually lent itself really well in this, this COVID atmosphere. So these oh. smaller units um, played really well. Yeah, that's a great, I personally would have liked to live by myself, but uh, obviously that's not possible in all college situations, but that's an, that's an awesome, uh, that's an awesome way of doing it. And it also adds a lot of value to it. Like you're probably getting a much higher rent. I would imagine renting to a college student versus a normal one yeah. bedroom apartment in that market. Yeah. I went from 450 to 800 within wow. the four years because it was a, a furnished rental. Oh yeah, the furnished rental. Perfect, perfect. So, uh, tell us about what you're currently doing. I, if I uh, know correctly, if I've heard this uh, and read it, it's you're do you work mostly through JVs, joint ventures, and par small partnerships. So, uh, explain to us a little bit about what your strategy is and your criteria and how you're uh, adding to your portfolio. Yeah. So, I the way that I looked at just this progression of investing and the way I wanted to approach it was I. Um, I wanted kind of more of an incremental approach because mm -hmm. I like to know I can trust myself and I want to risk my money before I'm risking any investor's yeah. money, right? So I, I went from a four to a six to an eight to like, I just played in this really small, you know, that I could own it all by myself area uh, of, of small multis. But then that ended up making it so that I had this dependable floor of cash flow. And as soon as I reached this point that all of my bills were covered by my stuff, then I could, you know, really swing for the fences. And, and that's kind of where I'm at now. Uh, subsequent to that, I've taken on a couple of joint venture partners in the kind of 50 unit space. Uh, we took down a 53 unit. There's three of us on that deal in Indianapolis. The reason being is I feel like we're a lot more nimble uh, with everybody being active and everybody, you know, um, in terms of the decision-making, the, the chance to have a bunch of different potential exits is in a syndication. Largely, you kind of have to project it in year two, we're going to do this and three, you're going to do this. And you thread the needle of a business plan to get as close to possible as the project to the projections as you can. But that kind of ends up losing a little bit of the risk mitigation with having multiple no. We found that in these um, joint ventures, you know, rather than thread the needle, we get to just buy it and watch what happens in the market, you know? So um, we did a, the 53 in Indianapolis. It's a, um, it's in Speedway, this West city where uh, the track is. Um, that's gone really well. It's been a reposition from uh, basically a builder that um, that's been an interesting play because the whole business plan is to just put rents where they belong. Um, nice. because builders build, they don't manage, you know? Yeah. And a lot of those exit strategies for builders are just to get it rented, uh, no matter really, they're not focusing too much on what they're getting for rent, just that they, Hey, Hey, here's 95% occupied and, uh, go at it kind of a thing, which I found with mm -hmm. builders. Same. 
and yeah. then think of what that does to your business plan. Yeah. You know, instead of like having to cross your fingers and hope that if we put in this granite countertop, we're going to get whatever extra bump in rent, then you know that next door you're getting exactly what you're projecting. You know, so I feel like that is an incredibly risk mitigated play. Yeah, it's a true value add. It's I, I don't really like, I hate the idea of just going in and the only strategy you have is to, you know, put $5,000 into it and try to get $150 more a month. I think that's so risky. And there has to be right. other factors that you're using because if we're going to go through, um, if you bought this in the beginning of COVID, I mean, you're probably not raising rents. I mean, so it's like, you might be getting them up to close to what your, your next door neighbor or your competitors are doing in that close neighborhood, but you're not going to be, Hey, we're kicking out all these people and putting in 5,000 a unit where we have no idea what's going to happen. The market. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you're you're kind of crossing your fingers anyway. And with yeah. the incredible fluctuations in building materials lately, that five thousand it might be seventy five hundred, no problem. Mm -hmm. That completely yeah. changes your projections. So, uh, when you're putting together these partnership and group teams, how did you first of all, how did you find your partners, and um, like what what did you, how did you make sure that you had alignment of interest in that partnership? Well. That'll kind of started when I have gone wrong. I um, I trusted probably way more than I should have because you know I've 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 worked in this multifamily space for some time and as single family investor who had a significant portfolio wanted to get into multifamily and I I knew better and I should have trusted my gut right and I ended up losing a huge chunk of cash in the, the process. But what that taught me expensive lesson, but a necessary one <laughs> is that, you know, I trust, but verify, right? Like I don't want to be in a partnership with someone like a full on marriage with someone that I've only known for six months. Right. So my joint venture partners are people that, you know, if I haven't known the other guys for a significant amount of time, then the guy that I have known has, and he, yep. you know, trusts, trusts them implicitly. So, um, you know, that, you know, it, it, so I found that I need a little bit more time to feel comfortable. And I, I do a background check on yeah. every single date uh, that I take on. And if it leads to a really awkward conversation about, Hey bro, why were you going 20 miles over the speed limit? And you got this, you know, thing on your record about it. At least then I have the opportunity to figure out how we, how we interact when hard conversations have to happen. So a lot of good comes from that. Yeah, and it's uh, it's very interesting when you're when you're asking those questions, how people react to them, or also how forthcoming people are uh, when they are, when you're starting this process. Mm -hmm. And that kind of leads a lot to who you're uh, initially, who you're in, in, in business with, because these are, I mean, I imagine you're not just keeping these for two or three years, you're gonna be in uh, you know, probably a decade at least with uh, all the right. different properties at one stage or another. So what is your role? Exactly. We, with oh. this buy and watch. <laughs> oh, no, go on. Sorry. Finish it up. <laughs> no, with the, the buy and watch kind of strategy that we've got, it is longer term. It is, you know, 10, 15 years horizon. Yeah. So what is your uh, role on your team when you're working with these, uh, I, with your JV groups? Are you uh, sourcing the deals? Um, I mean, everybody's obviously bringing money in. We, there's no raising of money per se. And uh, are you handling a little bit of underwriting and like, you know, asset management or is it mixed between everybody? Uh, so we kind of, um, we're very careful to make sure that we're um, uh, dividing things up so that everybody has a, an active role in the two most recent joint venture deals. Um, I, you know, kind of, um, I compare our projections 
to our actuals at the end of every month. Um, I am on asset management. So I actually this morning had a call on our uh, 53 unit to talk through some things that we saw on the, the water bill back and things like that, kind of helping manage the manager. And, um, you know, a lot of due diligence stuff early on, walking the properties, making sure that we have the right plan in place early on. So we, we split it up. It's, there's a lot of um, linking arms in nice. a lot of things. How are you doing with management on a 50 unit property? Are you, uh, you're relying on your property manager for a lot of that handyman and leasing type activities, or have you, do you have assets close to each other where you might have someone that's actually maybe full time between them? Great question. So we started with the 53 and we're very reliant on the property manager, but again, we've had uh, members of our team have had decades long uh, relationships with these folks. So um, there is a significant level of trust also um, because it is just a middle-sized and we can't really, it won't pay for its full-time uh, own management. Um, we love that they have assets in that same area. So we're a pretty nice. strong B, B plus yeah. asset. They have the ish asset not far away. So it's, it's not competition. But um, they they know what they're doing and the um, who to to put where. Nice. Our yeah, goal so though is to move towards. I'm sorry. Our goal no, is go to on. move towards uh, being able to afford our own. I know. I'm sorry. Our goal is to uh, be able to afford the full manager in growing that portfolio. Nice. I've spoken to other uh, owners before of this size properties like 40s and 50s and. We have a 60 unit where we actually have full-time, a full-time leasing person, full-time manager, which kind of is a little bit too much, but we have another property near it that we actually share it with. But initially for the first year or so, it was like, oh, wow, okay, this is like a little bit more than we want to be paying for, for payroll. But um, when I was speaking to someone else, they had a deal with their property manager where they actually had a handyman from the property manager that was, was deal with their property two days a week. However, that kind of sliced up and I was like, oh, that's, pr that's a pretty good thing. So you're paying like 6%, but you are getting someone on site two days a week, whatever it is, you know what I mean? Like a Tuesday and Friday or whatever it is where they can take care of uh, different, because a lot of items when they come in uh, that need to be repaired or fixed aren't immediate, right? There's some that definitely are, but there's a lot of stuff that's not that can be pushed back a day or two. So um, do you have some sort of setup like that with your, with your property managers? Yep. Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, the kind of property manager sits in our office and kind of directs the non-urgent stuff, just like you were saying. So exactly the same play. So when you're looking at properties, how are you stress testing your uh, acquisitions? Ooh, I love this question. So <laughs> when I, and I actually have been doing a lot of coaching lately too, and the, the way that I look at numbers, I, I call it like approach, right? Like I, I look at the, what is really likely to happen. And then I look at best case scenario and I look at worst case scenario, right? And if I manage towards the best case scenario, if I'm talking with a potential partner, or if we're going to do a syndication, uh, a, a passive investor, we talk about the really likely to happen. And then in terms of the worst case scenario, um, I really, what matters most to me is the economic vacancy break even point. Like how vacant can we be? How many people can we have not rent and still not money? Like that's, that's what really makes me feel warm and fuzzy when I know that up to like 30 or 40% of our people can not be paying and we, uh, you know, still will stay afloat in that asset. So the 53 unit we took down like right at the beginning of COVID, um, 
And we ended up, you know, that stress test, it showed that we could be 42% economically vacant, wow. largely because of the type of loan we had. But like, I was so nervous. This was the biggest thing I'd ever been at the helm of. And then I realized like the people losing their jobs were service industry people. Mm -hmm. And the people who kept their jobs were like computer programmers and sales reps and nurses, right? So the um, essential type workers. So I took the applications from the previous uh, owner or the previous management company, because you have to write what you do for a living um, on your application. And I said, all right, at-risk job, not at-risk job, right? Mm -hmm. And we had, we had eight at-risk jobs uh, in our tenants. So that gave us a ton of comfort that only 8% we thought really ran the risk of losing their jobs, but we could be 43%, 42% economically vacant and still pay our bills. So um, I love that type of stress test. That's awesome. That's a, quite the stress test because usually people are coming in like in the high 20s, mid 20s, you know, around 20, and you're literally double that. So that's a pretty, pretty safe fast. I like how you did that additional lease audit because usually you're just looking to make sure there's not too many people in one industry. And now you're doing it to make sure that uh, non essential jobs were only risking what 20% of your net less than it 20% or so 18% uh, of your your building. So that's fantastic. I haven't heard anybody uh, do that uh, when they're buying through COVID, but uh, it's definitely a very important thing to do. Um, can you, uh, one thing you talked about that, just uh, can you explain what economic vacancy is versus vacancy if people don't understand? For sure. Yeah. So normally when, if you're looking in a, an offering memorandum or something, you might see vacancy. Lots of times they mean vacancy like that's physical. They could be physically how many bodies are in these apartments proportionally. Economic vacancy is, you know, whether or not there's a body there is that uh, body paying rent. <laughs> So a physical occupancy and an economic vacancy could be a different number. Usually they're about the same because just about you would, you would move towards evicting people who aren't paying. But, um, you know, what's interesting to us is are the people paying that we've got in there? Nice. Okay. I appreciate that. Uh, so, I, I mean, we're both have taken down assets in this uh, mid fifties uh, range. And I really think that with these 20 to 60 unit properties, you can really truly find deals because I think it's a more imperfect market compared with hundred plus unit properties. Um, you know, what do you think about, what do you think about that and uh, how sourcing deals with smaller properties that might not be quote unquote syndicatable uh, helps you find a better deal? I love the word syndicatable. I feel like it's hyphenated and I'm going to write it down right now. Thank you for that. Um, I, and you are so incredibly speaking my language here, because if you look at what's happened, especially in this apartment investing world post-COVID, all of the big money, all of the institutional stuff uh, that would potentially have bought offices or strip malls or whatever, like we've proven to ourselves that we buy from Amazon and we can work from home, right? So that money is crowding into multifamily largely, in my opinion, from what I've gathered. And um, in that, like that has kind of crowded down. You used to be able to go after a hundred unit property and not have a ton of institutional pressure. Um, now, like the institutional money, like it's, it's going to the smaller stuff, 75, sometimes 50, right? So that plus the, you know, the mom and pop owners, the, the, you know, Shirley and Jeff who want to retire out of Cincinnati, Ohio, that, you know, they, they love all their tenants and they didn't push rents probably the way they should. They didn't terribly run it like a business. It was more so just how they lived their life. Um, you know, those mom and pop owners, they don't exist largely in the 50 to 100 unit mm -hmm. uh, atmosphere anymore. So in my opinion, you are dead on the, the places that you can you know, apply some business principles to and really achieve a, a true value add uh, 
it's the 20 to 50 unit space. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I love this joint venture model. And I'm, I'm developing like this bench of other people who, you know, are very interested in being active in one way or another and kind of leveraging the expertise of the, the markets in the Midwest that my business partners and I have, have been growing over the years. So, um, you know, in my opinion too, the, the smaller ones can get away from you more quickly because you don't have that full-time manager. So really kind of um, acquiring in a very similar footprint is super important and why we continue to try to double down in the uh, Indianapolis and Louisville markets because that's they're very close to each other and that's where we do all our site visits at. So um, totally agree in targeting the smaller stuff because that's where mom and pops are and institutional money is not. Yeah. And you can still syndicate those. We've done two syndications that were kind of like, let's say broken. We did it with one was a 32 unit and a 27 put together. And one was a 68 and a 22. So you can still, if anybody's out there listening, you can still syndicate these smaller properties, but it's going to take a little bit more work because you're kind of putting two together and uh, two loans and it's, it's more of a hassle. But if you're getting a discount on it, I mean, it's all worth it. And uh, your, your investors should appreciate that more if you're getting a lower price compared to someone because uh, when you sell it, it's not sold as a 68 and 22. It's now, hey, we have 90 or we have 100 or whatever it is. Yep. So it's always a, a huge plus. Um, what are common mistakes you see uh, other real estate investors make? You know, um, I, I believe firmly that this, you know, multifamily play is, it's all about the numbers, right? Like it's, we're, we're, we're valued on how well we run the business, the net operating income that we uh, are able to achieve. So, you know, letting go, you can't manage what you don't measure, not appropriately measuring or requiring management to measure the stuff that matters so that you can really make sure that stuff isn't getting away from you. And in this smaller space, the, the call it four to 50 unit, which is really my wheelhouse, that can go way more quickly because law of small numbers, right? Like the one unit of a fourplex is uh, 25%. So yeah. one pickup, it changes. So really um, understanding the numbers on the front end and the back end, you know, are I think where some investors could spend some more time. Interesting. And, uh, you were full-time in a job when you started, and now you are a full-time real estate investor. What do you think are some of the main factors that have contributed to your success during this whole process? You know, I always kind of um, would next right step. Like I would do the thing that felt like I should, should be doing it, right? And really involving myself in groups and um, myself and, you know, doing things that, you know, being around people doing the same stuff that I was doing. Cause in my little circle in the, the suburbs of Chicago, I'm this crazy girl. Right. But if I'm, you know, in, a, um, if I'm at a conference or something or part of masterminds that I'm a part of, Oh, Oh yeah. Well, no, me that because, you know, it's a call or whatever it is. So being around people, involving myself around people doing what I'm doing has been huge, but during COVID, you know, I, I sold a device that was an elective procedure. And um, that meant that I had to sit in this chair for three months in a way that I never had before. So I realized like, oh my gosh, it's just a math problem. How much money do I, how much cash flow do I need to see in order to feel comfortable giving my full focus to real estate? And I did that math. I made a little calculator for that because I couldn't find a calculator to help me estimate <laughs> what it is that I need. I'll, I'll give you that link. It's something I give away for free on my website, but knowing exactly where I was shooting for that really granular thing to figure out 
like my, my North star to run towards, uh, knowing that, uh, I, I was able to achieve it in 12 months just because I knew where I was running. Nice. So you had an idea, you had a budget for your own personal and your business expenses, then you had idea. Awesome. Yeah, that's exactly what you have to do if you're if you're planning on uh, going into anything full time outside of your job. Uh, tell us about a uh, you, you have a platform for women, you wrote a portion of a book. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, they're they're deceivingly close in name, but, uh, you know, I, I had a real estate coach and, you know, there's so few women in multifamily or at least even four or five years ago, there were even fewer, right? So it's really cool to see it growing, but early on, we just kind of banded together. And again, involving myself with people doing what I'm doing, we started a, a book club that then became a group called aspiring women achieving more. And now on Facebook, we have, uh, 2,400 members. Wow. Um, we do a free accountability, um, course every single uh, Friday at one central. So uh, if you're looking to meet other like-minded women, sorry, Charles, tell, tell all the ladies in your life. Uh, but we, we get together and we talk about what we're working on and we kind of, um, you know, mastermind and, and give each other um, some advice or some uh, leads on where to go next. And then because of the, the women's group, um, a publisher was writing a multi-author book called Aspire Women Finding Their Purpose. And uh, I had an opportunity to write a chapter in that sharing my story. It's 99 cents on uh, Kindle on Amazon, if you want to look. And we hit uh, the number one bestseller list in wow. um, three countries. So it's so weird to think that by definition, I am a... Uh, multinational, <laughs> uh, international bestselling author, but Hey, I guess it's not untrue. What countries, I mean, you know, we had us, you probably had Canada and it was actually Australia and, um, uh, England, England. We, okay, we were cool. very close in Germany. I got a lot yeah. of German friends. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. All right. All right. Yeah, no, yeah. it's uh, cause Canada is people don't understand. Uh, like one of the largest international, uh, one of the large, largest countries outside the U S that are buying U S real estate. So that's why I was wondering. Oh that. yes. But, yeah. yeah. But um, awesome. So uh, tell us how our listeners can learn more about you and your business. And I'll put all these links into the show notes. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, my website, Mandy McAllister.com uh, is kind of the catch all for everything. It talks about um, the aspiring women achieving more um, the, my, my investment arm, good fortune capital. Uh, it kind of tells you a little bit of all of the, the stuff I'm up to. Awesome. Okay. So you can find that into the show notes and the YouTube notes. And uh, thank you so much for coming on, Mandy, and looking forward to connecting with you here in the near future at uh, some uh, future event. Can't wait. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own.
Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.